0: I'm Karl Coleman. I am Kevin Johnson.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash Encountering Silence that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world
0: sometimes to encounter silence we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it when we do we bring our basic recording devices to keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of the way silence speaks. This week, in our first field recording, Cassidy Hall visited Father Stefanos Pedrano, at Prince of Peace Abbey in Oceanside, California. Father Stephanos knows the team of Encountering Silence through his interactions online, especially in his prayerful and poignant responses on the blog and online community of Sick Pilgrim. Cassidy was able to visit Father Stephanos and keep a record of the silence in his words, his pauses, and even in the ambiance of the room where they sat face to face. Sharing a drink:
1: Today we are at Prince of Peace Abbey in Oceanside, California, and I'm meeting with Father Stefanos. And Father Stefanos, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? And:
2: Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I met Cassidy through Facebook. <laughs> That's how I also interact with Carl and Kevin. I'm a monk, of course, of Prince of Peace Abbey here in Oceanside. Uh, the monastery has been here since 1958. I entered in 1981, right out of college, and I'm here.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's good to be here. It's good to be here. So we're going to dive in today a little bit on silence as it relates to Father Stephanos and the monastery, and but more specifically your personal life and. So we're going to start out with kind of a vague question, but uh, what would you say silence means to you? Mm-hmm.
2: To me? I discovered, oh, what do I call it, intentional silence uh, when I began to consider, uh, when, when I was in high school and college, the uh, possibility of some permanent way of life in the church. At first, formally, I was thinking of the priesthood, the kind of priest you'd meet in any neighborhood church. Uh, I began to pray on my own and discovered silence, intentional silence, that way. I started, I stumbled, already in high school, I stumbled uh, upon the writings of Thomas Merton. Hmm.
1: Um, Was there a book in particular?
2: Uh, several okay. I went to a public high school and there were hmm. Thomas Merton books in the library <laughs>
1: that's, a, that's a good sign <laughs> so interesting.
2: Uh, so I discovered intentional silence as a spiritual discipline that way uh, eventually I lost interest in the priesthood uh, that one would normally encounter in neighborhood churches but I was drawn already by the life of prayer and when I did visit a seminary where men studied for the priesthood and experienced their praying together at the Liturgy of the Hours, a home of prayer built around the Psalms, and their living in community in the seminary. Those two things attracted me deeply. Uh, the notion of living in community, but I wanted it to be permanent, uh, Uh, A diocesan priest, once he's ordained, he leaves the community of the seminary. And I didn't want to do that once I discovered the seminary life. And so I began to wonder if there was some form of life where I could have a permanent community and that its daily life included praying together the liturgy of the hours. And that basically, those two on their own were strong indications of of monastic life. So that's how I discovered my personal interest in monastic life. I I wouldn't say I was looking for silence, I really had acquired a taste for it, but silence is something built into the discipline of living monastic community life. So the question as far as what silence means to me I guess when I was first discovering a vocation, that would have been a very important question to me. And now it's maybe a question that I wouldn't expect to be asked, because silence as a goal is not so much in the forefront of my uh, attention now. I, I guess I'm taking it for granted, after all these years as a monk as an aspect of the life that's here. although I have to say, our founder St. Benedict, in his rule book or rule does devote uh, a chapter uh, to silence uh, so and, and uh, so it's definitely one of the ingredients of monastic living, but it has to be taken in the context of of the rest of monastic life, not just as a goal of, of its own
1: as you know when I, in two thousand and thirteen when I was traveling to monasteries, this is a question I would ask and a lot of of the Benedictine monks I spoke with would reference that you know the first word in the rule of Saint Benedict is listen mm-hmm. and that that always struck me mm-hmm. um just that it was kind of always this stance from a step back it opens with with just sitting back to listen mm-hmm. um in some sense
2: yes and and more than once Saint Benedict does say it's the place of the disciple to be silent hmm. and the role of the master to speak. Hmm. And so, this listen that Saint Benedict begins his rule book with is an injunction of a way of life where one is ready to listen uh, ultimately to the voice of God. Mm-hmm. And then, later, when he writes the chapter that he devotes to restraint of speech or keeping silence, one sees as the motive, you might say a negative motive, St. Benedict once encouraged silence as a way of avoiding the common sins of using speech, Hmm. whether it be speech that deceives, Mm -hmm. speech that is the fruit of uh, runaway bad temper or hatred. Sure. Speech that lies, speech that detracts, uh, gossip, mm-hmm. uh, vulgarity, uh, you, you name it, all, all the ways in which we can misuse speech. So that chapter, if one, if one would isolate it from the rest of the rule, it seems to be a negative chapter because St. Benedict's motive there is he wants to exclude the use of speech for sin so stringently that he even wants to discourage The use of speech for good purposes. Mm -hmm. So so he makes speech a discipline of life in the monastery, seeming to have behind it the motive of of a fear of sinful use of speech. I mean it's actually, you know, as a priest who hears confessions, Mm -hmm. I can say that sinful use of speech is a very common sin. Okay. Yeah. We can always yeah. use our, our mouth to, yeah. to do something that's not healthy or not reasonable or that's just plain old bad. Yeah. Um, so there's that. There's, there's the negative. But that has to be seen in the context of everything that St. Benedict is laying out. Because for St. Benedict, the ultimate goal, the ultimate motive and goal for the monk is ultimately no different from that of any other Christian. Uh, if you want to say it's the goal of salvation or the goal of inheriting eternal life, there's a figure in the Gospel who asks Jesus uh, what he must do to inherit eternal life. <clears throat> and the response of Jesus is You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, being, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So at the beginning of his rule book, St. Benedict speaks of the monastic life that way. That at its outset, if one is making his Christian life an explicit goal, then at the outset, this road to salvation is bound to be narrow. But then he says, very soon after that, if we persevere in this way of life, then he describes a situation where we come to where we are running on the path of God's commandments with the inexpressible delight of love. Hmm. Then at the, at, towards the close of his rule book, he then again, speaking of the zeal that should be part of every monk's life, includes then love for one's fellow monks, love for one's superior, and above all, love for Christ. So already at the end of his rule, he's repeating the thing that's, that Jesus said in, in response to the question, What must I do to inherit eternal life, love God, love neighbor? So the monastic life in that sense has no different motive or goal than the life of every Christian. Now, monks pursue that goal in a specific form of life. Mm -hmm. And so St. Benedict then lays out the form that that life takes. And one of the the forms practiced in that life is um, restraint of speech. So beyond the negative motive of wanting to curb the use of speech for unhealthy, unreasonable or or wicked ends, there are other contexts then for silence in the monastery. Uh, Already curbing wicked speech, part of it is out of love for one's brothers or out of love for one's superior, complaining to the superior because he gave you a hard job or <laughs> put on you some kind of unjust condition which can happen mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. silence as a way of, of practicing love by not wounding the, the fellow monk or the superior the curious thing when you think about the day of a monk where there is ample silence actually monks are also professional speakers hmm. because the monastic day is woven in and out of the divine office where we go several times a day as a community to use the gift of speech in reciting songs right so monks are men of silence but they're also men of many words yeah but if you consider <laughs> the restraint of speech then most of the words that a monk speaks every day are psalms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a, uh, as a way of life. So it's curious. We don't often think of monks as professional speakers or monks whose life is devoted to speaking. <laughs> but in a very real sense, our life is devoted to speaking, mm-hmm. spoken prayer, and primarily the psalms.
1: Yeah, yeah. So... With with what you all had to say there about about Saint Benedict and um, and the rule and everything the rule of Saint Benedict and whatnot, who would you consider as your, if you have one, a, a silence hero in your life? And I'm curious, you know, maybe, maybe there's um, a religious silence hero, and maybe there's a, a non-religious silence hero. I don't know, but um, perhaps someone that. That taught that to you, younger, you know, as as a form of of um, interior growth or mm-hmm. something like that.
2: Although the other day, uh, this is going to be somewhat of a paradox.
1: Sure, sure, we like paradox. Okay, it's so all where all the tension is.
2: There is a, a modern figure who suffered silence. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I thought of mentioning that Yeah. Um, Mother Teresa hmm. uh, you may know that she as a young woman entered a religious order the Sisters of Loretto from Ireland and was very soon sent to their house in India that ran a girls school as a sister of Loretto she began to uh, experience in prayer words from Jesus. Now, mind you, as a sister of Loretto, she was working at uh, a boarding school for girls of uh, wealthy families. Mm -hmm. But she could see right outside the walls of the convent and the school, the, the poverty that surrounded her in that part of India. She began in her personal prayer to have experiences of Jesus speaking to her personally. And at one point when she was coming back on the train from her personal annual retreat, uh, Jesus, apparently as she says it, verbally commanded her to leave her religious order and that she would go and live among the poor and represent him among the poor. So she took steps to obey what she experienced as a verbal command directly from the person of the Son of God. And that involved having to get permission from her own religious order superiors and the local bishop, and getting permission from Rome. That process took about two years. And when all the permissions were in place, and now she went out the door Mm -hmm. to go and begin living among the poor, she writes This came to light only after her letters were revealed after she died. From the day she finally was able to materially obey the spoken command of Jesus and leave that convent and start a new way of life, for the rest of her life she heard not one word ever again from God, nor felt that he was addressing himself to her in her prayer life. So from the moment she set foot outside the convent to obey a verbal command. She never heard another word from God for the rest of her life, lived, uh, I like to think of it this way, she was sent to serve the poorest of the poor, but part of that involved suffering, great personal interior poverty, the Mm -hmm. silence of God, a sense that she was
0: Mm -hmm.
2: abandoned, and ignored. But the wonder there is, even though that, that she went from experiencing verbal right. interventions to total silence and a sense of dark abandonment, she did not withdraw one bit the gift of herself to God in a life of prayer and of service of neighbor. So that's a strange hero of silence. For
1: me. Yeah, but I like it because it, it points to the 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 pain, the pain of silence, right? Mm-hmm. And the pain that though she yielded to those words, it meant no more words. No more words. Yeah. And and the agony of that. Yeah. And but still still yielding to that. Mm-hmm. You know, she obviously as we well know, she didn't give up. No. Just because she didn't hear anything else, no. you know so that's an, yeah that is an interesting hero but like to think of it in such a way that you know essentially she did have a practice of silence with God because mm-hmm. her communion with God was silence mm-hmm. and, and hearing nothing
2: There, there is in her life as, as a, a, a religious sister also a schedule of prayer with times for silence so those as a way of life also there were times of the day where Silence was a, an intentional discipline practiced. But uh, aside from that, that's what captivated me. That here she suffered a sense of being uh, in faith. She knew she wasn't ignored, but in terms of sure. her experience of what her faith told her inside her, she just felt, "Where, where is he? Why? Why nothing? Why nothing?" Right. Right. So there's that. You mentioned, you described that as suffering, and it was for her a great suffering. St. Benedict, in the beginning of his rule, the prologue, when it comes to the conclusion of his prologue, and he speaks of, as I said earlier, persevering in this way of life and arriving eventually to a point where one is running on the path of God's commandments with the inexpressible delight of love, Then he closes by saying so, never swerving from God's teaching but persevering in His instructions in the monastery until death, we shall, through patience, share in the sufferings of Christ so as to deserve to share in His kingdom. The curious thing there, St. Benedict writing in Latin, is playing on words because patience has the same root as suffering in Latin. Hmm. To practice patience is to decide to suffer something. Absolutely. The suffering St. Benedict has in mind is even the ordinary sufferings or patiences that one must practice uh, in life with one's work, with one's neighbor, with one's superior, uh, with with anything. But he sees that one is going to need to practice patience in this way of life. For Christian, that programmatic statement of St. Benedict also applies, although Christians are not all in the monastery. They all persevere in God's teaching until death and are all called to suffer what may come on this path of love. As, as Jesus said, no one has greater love than to die for another. Mm. So, so even the greatest measure of love is, is, is suffering for another.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great, and and that's essentially what Mother Teresa did. Yes, she suffered in in patience. In patience. Yeah.
2: Uh, never withdrawing. Yeah, right. Her, her availability for God in the times of prayer, or her availability for God and the poor mm-hmm. and her fellow sisters, she never withdrew a single bit of that availability, even though. It was uh, dying to wanting to hear something back from yep. God. Yeah,
0: right, right. The field recording will continue after this brief period of silence. Please, take a breath with us and let us meet together in this 30 seconds of silence.
2: other aspects of silence from St Benedict's description of monastic life aside from any speaking which needs to happen in the course of daily work St Benedict clearly discourages the monks from speaking doesn't mean they didn't speak at all but it was kept to the minimum necessary there are periods of the day where silence is more strict so for instance after the last community prayer of the day until the morning is what monks call the grand silence mm-hmm. where all speaking is to be omitted during the daylight hours during the period when the monks are practicing what Saint Benedict calls lectio divina which focused primarily on reading the scriptures reflectively Benedict legislated for uh, the monks to have an average of three hours a day of this private practice throughout the year. More when there was more daylight, and less when there was less daylight. But the year-round average for St. Benedict would have been three hours of of Divina, where the monks were to individually, by themselves, be reading, say, good scripture or patristic commentaries, which are scriptural, so strict was this private practice of the monks at St. Benedict even uh, legislates for assigning senior monks to patrol the monastery mm. to make sure of two things, that no one was talking. Yeah. And second, <laughs> that the monks were actually doing their reading.
1: Mm. Okay,
2: so this is an enforced silence. But here now, it's again, it's so that the monks can listen to, right. to God's words. Right. Now, it's curious... Lexodivina Divina is meant to be a personal encounter with God through the scriptures. And in order for the encounter to be personal, it has to be interpersonal. And so that means sometimes in Lectio Divina, one may be comforted by what he reads. At other times, he may be challenged, saddened, or angered. By or disgusted by what he reads, and may want to talk back. Yeah, and tell right. God, I don't like that. Right. Stop saying that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not for me. Yeah. And having an argument. Now, it's not that one is expected to hear monks arguing with themselves and God, <laughs> but if if one is doing lectio as a as an authentic bringing of yourself before God to hear what he has to say. Then you're going to argue at some point Whether that's audible or not Is beside the question But you're going to argue You're going to have a real relationship And work through some things Over the course of a lifetime But that's not going to happen If you're not also listening To what God has to say So therefore St. Benedict Has these monitors going around Enforcing the silence And enforcing the reading Mm -hmm. Just to see that the monks Are actually using the time for that Yeah. Uh, Other. Contexts for silence in the monastery? Oh, the monastery's oratory or chapel. Beyond the times when the community gathers formally to recite psalms together, therefore not be silent, or rather to silence human words and to give voice to God's words mm. in his worship, as well as for the sake of one's own formation. Outside of those times of communal voicing of worship saint benedict wants the oratory to be a place of strict silence so that anyone who wants to go back to the oratory on his own can do so and not be disturbed by noise that others might be making Mm -hmm. so that's another place where saint benedict enforces silence Uh, there the motive is twofold one that a noisemaker not Sin. If you want to put that, by disturbing the positive motive for the silence, the prayer of another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that's another aspect of silence. Another context where Saint Benedict speaks of a form of silence. It's more of a silence of attitude. Is in his chapter on the twelve steps of humility. Mm. There, he wants the monk to be aware that he's always in the sight of God and so that he needs to be in custody of his behavior, including his speech. Then later in The Steps of Humility, uh, he describes a situation where a monk may find that circumstances have laid on him a situation that is too hard for him. It might be a difficult task, maybe one day abbot, has assigned or maybe a relationship with the confrere. And so Saint Benedict allows the monk to go and address the situation verbally uh, with his superior uh, and to express himself humbly. But then Benedict foresees that it may be that the situation doesn't end or the superior, for some reason, will not change the situation And so the monk is left with the difficulty. And so in the fourth step of humility, St. Benedict tells the monk, in this case, even though he may have legitimately gone to bring to the attention of his superior an unjust or difficult situation, if there is no change, then in the fourth step of humility, St. Benedict tells the monk, then let his heart quietly embrace the suffering.
1: Hmm, hmm.
2: Now there is a different kind of silence beyond just shutting your mouth. Right. There's also letting the heart quietly embrace—not yeah. not really tolerate, right? But let the heart choose. Yeah. To embrace the suffering. So that that's another form of silence.
1: Yeah, and and I I relate to that very strongly with I've practiced uh, centering prayer mm-hmm. and just you know silent prayer mm-hmm. and. The way the inner noise comes up, mm-hmm. and and it's it can be a situation of kind of suffering, and and mm-hmm. and seeing seeing those things um, that are a part of myself, and ultimately, you know, of course, it draws me closer to my fellow human mm-hmm. and, and humanity because it, it deepens my understanding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, to to sit in that quietness mm-hmm. and and embrace that suffering, right? Mm-hmm is also maybe in one way that we more fully embrace humanity.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That ties in with uh, a subsequent step of humility, mm-hmm. which involves a, another context of silence that relates, again, to love of neighbor. Mm. Uh, I think it's the seventh step of humility. This one is goes against the grain of our modern way of thinking. <laughs> the seventh step of humility is that a man not only admits with his tongue, but also is convinced in his heart that he is inferior to all and of less value, humbling himself and saying with the prophet, I am truly a worm, not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. I was exalted, then I was humbled and overwhelmed with confusion. And again, it is a blessing that you have humbled me so that I can learn your commandments. That just grades on modern sensibilities. Why would I adopt such an unhealthy attitude, as, as we might put it? Sure. But if you think about it, if you think of yourself as lower than others, if you cultivate this as an attitude, then you are far less likely to step on someone, to step over someone. If you're actively cultivating a sense that, no, they are better than I am. Mm. They are higher than me. I deserve to be on the bottom. If you cultivate that, you will be far less likely to wrong another by stepping on him. Sure. or stepping over him. Right. And so that involves then another kind of silence.
1: Yeah.
2: Silencing my desire to be higher than another. Kind
1: of silencing the
2: ego. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another yeah. aspect of silence. Mm that then leaves room for not only not harming or hurting another but also actively leaves room for respecting another especially someone i don't like or someone who has maltreated me sure so again here the context is love mm-hmm. st benedict begins the rule talking about love for neighbor and god and ends the rule by speaking of love for neighbor and god this this underlies even then uh, the discipline of, of withholding speech as much as possible because of the ways speech can be used, whether it's verbalized speech or the interior dialogue of saying, I'm better than he is. Sure. Why did you treat me that way? <laughs> I deserve better. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so since you've been here, would you say you've had any encounter with silence that has dramatically impacted either you and your personhood or your ability to live in community even better. Mm -hmm. But like a specific, you know, maybe encounter with Mm -hmm. silence.
2: I've been here 36 years now. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it washes together. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like a a fabric. And I, I, I find it difficult to go through and say, oh, this thread... Mm. Uh, uh, there are, I guess there are threads but I, 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 yeah. I come away from it rather than remembering well or often individual incidents I, I'm more conscious now of a fabric yeah. a, a pattern uh, one of the paradoxes for me of talking about Benedictine life People sometimes expect of St. Benedict's rule a a systematic description of the landscape of the interior life. Hmm. You could put one together from studying the rule of St. Benedict, but you wouldn't, wouldn't really find anything near an exhaustive systematic laying out. Of the landscape of the spiritual life of St. Benedict. The ingredients that would go into it, yes. So, St. Benedict basically lays out, I mean, a lot of his rule book is simply this is a simplification, a to-do list of how to run the monastic day. Yeah. But what that accomplishes is it lays out a disciplined culture, a disciplined way of life, where a Christian... Mindful of the right motivation and the right goal, if living this way of life sincerely would arrive at a certain degree of sanctity, holiness, mm-hmm. unself consciously. Maybe that's the word I was looking for. Saint Benedict puts before us a relatively unself conscious way of life. Not once do you hear see the word contemplative or contemplation in the will of St. Benedict. Mm -hmm. And yet that's something people tend to expect of monks or monastic language, but the word doesn't appear there. Rather it's this way of life where if the monk gives himself to it, those we'll call them contemplative experiences or gifts might or might not happen. Mm. If they do, They're not a goal. Right. The goal is love of neighbor, love of God, Mm. in this concrete way of life. Unlike, let's say, later religious orders where their founders were more concerned, rightfully so, with contemplation as a goal. For instance, the the Dominicans have as their motto to hand on to others what has been contemplated. Mm. Hmm so therefore they they intend to be teachers, but teachers of something that they have themselves contemplated. Right. Benedict doesn't put before the monk in so many words contemplation as his goal. You can see it in what he teaches. I mean, when he assesses whether a man who wants to join the monastery ought to be allowed to do so, there are some discernment hurdles he puts the man through. And at the end of it, he says, well, in the end... Does he really seek God? Hmm. Well, what is that? Someone might say, does he want to be a contemplative? But that's not St. Benedict's language. Does he really seek God? If you wanted St. Benedict's language about what that meant, then you can go to the prologue or the conclusion of his rule, where, as I said, he says, love of neighbor and his fellow monks and love for God. So it goes back to something that's basically the Christian goal.
1: Right, right. And it's interesting, too, that contemplation was not a part of his his dialogue and, and his rule because it, it is one of those things that is deep in mystery. You don't know what it is until you do it or you experience it to, to some degree, right? I mean...
2: Yeah, one of the... The paradoxes of St. Benedict right where you would expect him to say something about contemplation, mm. he doesn't. <laughs> and that's where he talks about Lectio Divina. He legislates, you know, an average of three hours a day over the course of the year mm. for the monks individually to spend reading scripture. Now we know that Lectio Divina involves reading scripture not for the sake of quantity, but for depth. You know, you might come across a phrase and not get past it because of the interior dialogue with what's said in that phrase. And so other writers on this discipline of Lecture Divina describe phases of the practice. First there is the actual reading of the text and then there's the reflective consideration of what's there. With one's openness towards letting something happen you can't force it and that might involve an experience of contemplation but that's something you leave to happen you leave god to do you are there to give yourself to the text and wrestle with it ruminate over it well saint benedict when he talks about lexa divina just says here's the schedule do it Mm. and by the way Make sure you appoint seniors to make sure the monks are actually doing it. <laughs> and then he doesn't describe it. Yeah. So right where you would expect, well, give us something. <laughs> What's supposed to happen there? Right. He just presumes everyone knows what that is. Mm. He doesn't talk about it. So again, it's, it's, it's rather unselfconscious. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. In fact, when he speaks about Lexio. St. Benedict is aware in his day and age that there are monks who likely might not even be able to read. In that case, let them be given some light work to occupy them during this period. Hmm. So so it's, it's rather unselfconscious.
1: So as your own relationship has evolved with silence hmm. and even prior to the monastery hmm. and then coming here and studying, right? Mm-hmm. And, and even beforehand studying mm-hmm. these traditions and whatnot. What would you say is the thing that has surprised you most about silence and silence in the religious life for yourself?
2: Mm-hmm. I would say discovering the way I work. The I'll, I'll use the word landscape. The landscape of my own emotions, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: my own psychological makeup, the patterns of thinking that capture me when I read, in particular, the Gospels, and this awareness of my own interior life mind has increasingly led me to wonder, well for example, I might be experiencing irritation at the behavior or the words of another monk mm. or I might read of some horrendous event out there a crime, sure. like the one that happened in Las Vegas this mass shooting of hundreds of people and the deaths of so many mm-hmm. I find myself thinking when I encounter a behavior or words from another that upset me i find myself remembering sometimes mm-hmm. to ask what did that person ever suffer if anything that led to this event what in that person's history might lie behind why he acted this way and did this horrible thing? How how did he suffer mm. that this happened? Mm. And then the question is, you know, because then wonder well, this suffering that happened to me led to this way of responding to situations, right? Right. And then becoming aware that other people have similar things in their lives. Now, not that every behavior is excusable. Right. Some are inexcusable. Absolutely. But you begin to see, why do we do things?
1: So have you felt a, like a greater connectivity to other humans? I mean, and humans you don't know
2: through... Well, the potential for it, because I'll say okay. there are people I just want to <laughs> stay away from.
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
2: Um, <laughs> the potential is there, and then it's, it's my work to say, okay, mm. so what am I going to do with that? Am I going to... Mm. Gonna, am I going to seize that, or am I going to run, um, am I going to uh, St. and never swerving mm. from God's teaching, but persevering until death, I shall through patience share in the sufferings of Christ. So that's, that's, that's the, the Christian motive.
1: The patience of suffering. <laughs> that has been the, kind of the centerpiece of this conversation, really. It
2: yeah, just happened.
1: But, it happened. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, maybe I'd, I'd like to twist that a little by saying, okay. you well, know, maybe the centerpiece is love. Mm. Because if one is going to love <laughs> in this world, right. one then will not avoid suffering right. in order to love. And as Jesus said, right. greater love has no one than to lay down one's life for another. Yeah. Uh, If you're going to be available for the welfare of another, if you're going to be unavailable for damaging the welfare of another, Mm. you're going to suffer in order to do that.
1: Right, right. So I'm curious if you would have any book recommendations for the people listening. Ah. Yeah. Uh, whether they're you know somewhat related to silence or even related to some of these topics that were come that have come up, um, okay. Because for me, even you know along the lines of this, the concept of love and and suffering and patience, I do believe that there is a way to point to silence as love, mm-hmm. right? And so I think I mean all these topics are mm-hmm. so so closely intertwined and mm-hmm. so. Really related to any of these things, would yes. you have any book recommendations?
2: Maybe not directly on the topic of silence itself, but mm-hmm. books that would inculcate a discipline where silence is an ingredient. Mm. Okay, so one on Lexio Divina. <laughs> a lot of articles out there on, on Lexio Divina. Uh, I think the, the one that's most comprehensive is Michael Casey's book, Mm. Sacred Reading. Okay. That's about the discipline of Lexa Divina. Other books pertinent. I I know, I I guess I spent a lot of time talking about suffering. Not that suffering is is a Benedictine ideology. (laughs) No, it's not. But it's just that uh, if one is to love, in in this world, and and love without condition, then one is going to take up one's cross and follow after Jesus. Uh, And then there's the silence of Jesus on the cross. Once -hmm. once He begins His triduum of being arrested and judged and crucified, uh, there's an end to His public ministry. From that moment, he's no longer preaching to the public. Pilate even says, Do you have nothing to say? Don't you know I have power? And Jesus doesn't bother anymore to defend himself or to preach the truth. Now is the time for his silence. And so his public ministry ends. And once he rises from the dead, even though he comes and goes among his disciples for 40 days after rising there is still no public ministry. There is ministry within the circle of His disciples. But neither Jesus nor His disciples for those 40 days after He rose from the dead practice any kind of public ministry to those who are not already believers. So there is, in this sense, silence. The silence of Jesus and the silence of the Church. For those 40 days until He ascended... And then for 10 more days until Pentecost, there is still the silence of the church. And they don't begin speaking to the public until Pentecost itself. So one could say along those lines that silence is also a way of waiting for the Spirit of God to give one the words that one may speak to Mm. the world. And I emphasize the word may. Right, right. Because there is the silence of Jesus and the church until Pentecost sends the church out to speak words to the world. And that might be you know, a sermon saying, that's another purpose of silence. Now, now we're getting beyond the Benedict monastic because monks aren't normally in the vision of St. Benedict. They don't exist to preach outside the monastery. But this Christian silence from Holy Thursday until Pentecost, it's as if one has nothing to say to the world until the Spirit gives one the words to be said. Hmm. So practicing silence is a way to receive the words that should be spoken. Hmm.
1: I love that. I love that. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit silence. That's patreon.com slash encounteringsilence. That's patreo ncom slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social spiritual and physical well-being